the way they address policies to perhaps attract people that have voted on the 50% of the other side to try to get up to 52 or 53. We got to see more of that. That will naturally bridge the divide. But here we are two elections in a row where the Democrats believe that they're just right, that there's a consensus, and that somehow, some way, the, the, that they can ignore the reality. And the Republicans are not much better. It's a, a little bit of chaos on both sides, but it leads to the, the policy issue of cannabis. Welcome to the Miracle Plant Podcast, the show that inspires, promotes, and gives you a daily dose of inspiration from the people who have used cannabis to change their lives in extraordinary ways. Here's your host, Justin Benton. Welcome back to the Miracle Plant Podcast. We are so grateful and happy to have the one and only Bob Hoban from Hoban Law Group to come on the Miracle Plant Podcast and share his story and his vision of the Miracle Plant and where it's going. Bob, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Justin, it's my pleasure to be here. I am doing great today. I The, the sun is out. The, the the world is a little bit chaotic right now, but that's not to be unexpected a day after a very close election. But it's really good to be here with you. And I'm really happy to see you focusing your energy on this podcast and really bringing out stories about how this plant does and has affected people on a day-to-day level. Uh, not enough of that, in my opinion. Absolutely. And we're so happy and honored to have you here. As for those of you that haven't heard, uh, our story, again, was we were dealing with a very severe diagnosis with our son. We didn't really know where to turn. Like most people, we went to Google. We uh, went to researchers and doctors and therapists, and uh, we were just really lost and uh, looking for answers. And we came across some research from Dr. Raphael Mishulam back in the 70s that he found that this plant, uh, especially CBD, was able to help kids with seizures and epilepsy. And at that time, five or six years ago, we were just like winging a prayer. If it was helping with the neurological ailments of seizures, then then maybe it could also help with the neurological ailment as like autism. And so we we got lucky and we're very happy to report we have a very healthy, happy son and uh, it's our obligation, our moral obligation, and our honor to pay it forward and share these stories. And if you wouldn't mind, Bob, I know you've got a beautiful story, how you were led to this amazing industry and how this miracle plant affected you and your loved ones. Yeah, there's so many folks in this industry that have been led to participate in the business of the industry because of a personal story. And, and mine is my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And in fact, November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. I'd encourage everyone to take a look at the PANCAN organization, which is Pancreatic Cancer Network. And it is a really serious form of cancer because by the time you realize that there's something wrong, it's oftentimes too late. And that was certainly the case with my mother. She started to feel uh, radiating back pain across her lower back, indigestion issues, irregular stools and the like, and that just the doctors couldn't tell her what was wrong and ultimately determined it was pancreatic cancer. And when they tell you you've got pancreatic cancer, more often than not, they say, oh, and by the way, you've only got about six months to live, which was which is an eye-opener. Going through that process, understanding my mother was in New Jersey where I grew up, of course, living in Colorado. She would travel out here frequently. When she got the diagnosis, we bought a, a condominium out here and we moved her out here a couple of the weeks a month. She would do her chemo on the East Coast and she would come out to, to uh, Colorado 
primarily spend time with us, the family, my children, and so forth and so on. And every morning before I went to work, I would stop at the condo, make her breakfast, administer the set of pills and keep track of all that because when you're caring for a patient that has cancer, tracking pills is essential. And one morning I saw her taking one of these Oxycontin 80s to her mouth with her cup of tea and drool came out of her mouth. In other words, the body was, I need that just to feel better. But it was a catch-22 because you really couldn't take a powerful narcotic like that with nothing in your stomach. And you couldn't put anything in your stomach when you just felt like crap. Immediately, my thought was, what about cannabis? I know know a little bit about cannabis. My mother would never smoke it. I knew that. So we had to look at different ways that we could experiment with it and play it around, play around with it. I'm happy to say that my mother did live for nearly three and a half years with pancreatic cancer after giving a six-month sentence and nearly almost three of those years with no opiates whatsoever because we just played around. And I lament the fact that we didn't have dispensaries at that point in time. It was still caregiver networks. There was a criminal law exception, but you couldn't walk into a store like you could today and say, let's try this, try that. You couldn't talk to knowledgeable people that would provide you with real-time, tried-and-true, data-driven guidance at that point in time necessarily. So anyway, that's the my entry into the cannabis industry. And some of the caregivers that I began to work with for my mother, they began to become friendly with myself and they realized that I was an attorney. And some of those folks became the first dispensary uh, operators in the city of Denver and across the state of Colorado. My mom, rest in, rest in peace, she died in 2008. But at the end of the day, that was my entree into the cannabis industry. Absolutely. And it's incredible, like you said, how many of us in this industry came here with altruistic reasons because of what the plant gave our, either ourselves or a loved one or a family member. And you obviously are famously known as the, the pizza saver who sits in the middle of the pizza, those little plastic pizza that keeps the top of the pizza from coming down and squishing on the cheese. And you've had an incredible vision and an incredible shotgun seat to see this entire industry come from where it was when you were helping your mom back in 2005 and 2008 to where it is now. And I would be remiss not to ask you to explain a little bit of your journey, Bob, because it is such an incredible journey. And there's so much that you've been able to witness and learn and help move things along. So if you wouldn't mind giving us just a little where you've seen where it was then to where it is now and and now the day after an election, where it could be. So the people that know, what I mean by that is people that studied cannabinoids. There were there are a number of people that understood the, the detailed interaction of cannabinoids and how cannabinoids provide for the health of the human body, not the opposite of that, which is that propaganda that's been out there around the cannabis plant for so long. But that was not mainstream information. When you begin to help somebody in your family with cancer or whatever the condition might be, it's a challenging journey because you don't know how to go about it. In a scenario where my mother wasn't going to smoke anything, Vape pens weren't the norm at this point in time. This was a uh, this was pre dispensaries, if you will. So you could go to a store and you could buy a a piece of cake or a piece of bread that was infused, but you never knew whether that was going to make you sleep for three days or provide relief for two hours. There was just no consistency, no dosing. All of that was the challenge. Now couple that with 
Another story, and I'll come back to this, is my son was early on diagnosed with ADHD and try this, use this, use that. So I, I went down that same rabbit hole. Is there information out there that would suggest that cannabis helps with that to avoid using what's, what's in effect speed, these methamphetamines and, and Ritalin? And, so I called a doctor, Dr. David Behrman in Southern California. I think Dr. Behrman, legendary endocannabinoid doctor, really smart man. And he just published an article on cannabinoids and ADHD. So the journey was, how do I use this to accomplish what you wrote about in your conclusions in your study? And the answer was, well, you have to play around with land race strains, not, oh, go try this, use this, 10 milligrams of this. Then I called Dr. Lester Grinspoon, also rest in peace, a former late Harvard doctor who, who wrote and researched this issue thoroughly for decades and decades at a very high level. He too said, he was treating his own cancer with cannabis at that point in time and said, I just have to continue to play around and experiment. So both of those things were happening at the same time, which led me to believe that we need to make this accessible to everyone, but there has to be some form of regulation or standardization behind it because I know things. Other people that are coming to this, they're doing it out of desperation. They don't know things about cannabis. They need to be led in a direction that is fairly certain, fairly standardized, and that didn't exist. So that's why I've devoted the better part of my career over the last 14, 15 years of pursuing regulated commercial industry around this plant, which is distasteful to some people just think it should be free and easy and, and, and everyone should be able to possess it. And there are exceptions to the rule in different states at different levels, but a commercial system of distribution within a dispensary system for THC products, for non-psychoactive cannabinoids, companies like yourselves that operate above board, that provide materials that are following food grade and farmer grade standards and distributing products that are wellness products, that are products that people can and, and do take every day. And then the pharmaceutical lane. To me, all of those things should exist at the same time. I don't pick one over the other because somebody that's new to this that wants to help a family member or a friend, they should have all of those options available to them and it should be standardized. Otherwise, it becomes too experimental for people to even have patience to help the, their loved ones out. And, and I think that's where commercialization has brought us. Now, there's a lot of downside to commercialization and regulation too, which is much documented, but we don't necessarily have to go down that rabbit hole unless you want. No, thanks. Again, the, the, the whole point of having this podcast is to have guests on like you that have incredible insights and experiences that can share with my audience and, and have the audience grow and, and what have you. And it's just incredible that you've seen from you were right there when Colorado was the first state to actually legalize recreational cannabis. And you were there to help make sure that those guys were protected. And you were there to also make sure that they were able to open up and, and do all the different things that they were looking to do as well. So from that point, moving forward, what would you say, give us the journey of what you've seen from that point moving forward to now? And then now that, you know, what's going on in the future as well? So I'll use my Colorado experience as an example. And what happened in Colorado, quite literally, almost in the exact same order, happened in every state that we worked in, from California to Washington, to Oregon, to Nevada, to Massachusetts, uh, to southern states, to east coast states, to the Midwest. And that is 
At the beginning, when you start to talk about medicinal cannabis, policymakers and mainstream um, individuals, they're skeptical because they've always been told that cannabis is is a, a society ill. It's not something that can make you healthy, not something that can make you better. Heck, doctors haven't even learned uh, and studied about our endocannabinoid system in medical school until even recently, and that's not widespread at all. And for those of us that understand the endocannabinoid system even a little bit, and I'm no doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but it's the most sensitive, perhaps most powerful powerful regulatory system within the human body intended to create homeostasis. So by by supplementing your naturally produced cannabinoids produced within your body with phytocannabinoids or plant-based cannabinoids from the outside, you create this balance in your body that can help address situations like cancer, ADHD, the list goes on and on. But what I've seen was these policymakers go, wait a second, they, they successfully created a ballot measure that legalized cannabis in some form. It didn't create a commercial structure, though. So the door is open. And if we, the legislature, don't do something about regulating this industry, it's just going to be a bunch of people doing things out of their garage and unregulated. And that doesn't make us comfortable. So we won a court case in December 30th of 2009 in Colorado. And that court determined that the ballot measure that was passed by citizens, which became a constitutional amendment, did provide caregivers and patients with rights, not just patients. Caregivers became the way that commercial businesses began to operate. But that didn't mean it was regulated, meaning that what I sell to a consumer is safe and consistent and quality, and it's not going to make anybody sick. That regulations came shortly thereafter, because the politicians said, these are real people. These are veterans. These are mothers and fathers. These are children with debilitating conditions that are, they're not the stereotypical stoner. And that image does last in those folks' minds. They didn't want to feed into that, but these people look like us. They talked like us. They held jobs and they were using cannabis to address their conditions. And this was only 12, 10, 11, 13 years ago. This is not ancient history, but that happened so fast. And we see it happening state by state where then all of a sudden the policymakers, the politicians go, that veteran who suffers from PTSD and gets relief from this for anxiety and other symptoms, they're not gaming the system. This is real. Believe it or not, that's where it all started. And once those policymakers, those politicians saw that it was real, saw that the relief was genuine, saw that these people did not fit what in their mind was that stereotypical stoner definition, they began to support regulation. And now the rest is history. Every state's gone through that exact same exercise, some better than others, to the point where we understand now that cannabis is an economic driver not just a medicinal compound or a wellness compound. It's an economic driver. It's safe. It's regulated. And the data in the states that have legalized and regulated the plant, it doesn't indicate any adverse consequences to society. So we've, and, and furthermore, during a pandemic, it's been deemed an essential business. So all of those things together indicate that cannabis is here to stay as a regulated commercial industry. And Justin, what do you and I talk about a lot when we're not on the podcast? It's the globalization of the industry. It's global. There is a global cannabis supply chain right here, right now. And that's pretty darn exciting to be a part of. <laughs> You're telling me. And I've always, I, I looked up and then Bob's definitely one of the godfathers of the cannabis industry. And I've been riding on his coattails for many years now. 
And I, I believe it's 20 or 30 countries that you've helped write laws and help them understand how to get cannabis trade going, importing and exporting in all those different countries. So very exciting to get out there and help all of these different countries. What would you say is a country that you see on the horizon that could really step up? And I, I, I guess I'm answering it to myself, but the EU and Brazil stand out pretty big to me. But what do you see going on as far as some of the next big dominoes to, to fall as far as cannabis and, and hemp policy goes internationally? Yeah, certainly outside of the United States, the European Union has the most consumer demand for cannabinoid products, primarily industrial hemp-derived products like CBD, and that comes in a, a variety of different forms. Of course, there's medicinal cannabis nations like Germany that have uh, regulated distributed cannabis. So the model is there, but the European Union takes the UN 1961 Convention on Narcotic Drugs extremely seriously. Not that other countries do not, but it's less prominently discussed here in the United States. It's like the last thing on the list versus the first thing on the list that you talk about when you talk about cannabis policy reform. So the United Nations very much drives how the European Union looks at this. And the United Nations is in the midst of cannabis policy reform. I've written a couple articles about this in Forbes, uh, about regulatory chaos, about the United States driving the discussion around the United Nations on the backside, which has influenced that policy. But as I look ahead, Latin America is extremely interesting to me. To your point, Brazil, its nationalized healthcare system drove forth with regulations and policies to use cannabis as a, as a medicine within that system. And it's a country with 200 plus, maybe 215 million people. That is not an insignificant sum. Look at Colombia that's moved forward with this in the last two to five years with over, I believe, 50 million people. Argentina's on the verge of moving forward with legislation. But the crown jewel, if you will, of Latin America, which is a North American country, but still representative of the region, is Mexico. Mexico is set by law to enact legislation before the end of the year. That would have happened in May or June, but not for the pandemic. And as it happens now, think about this for a minute. You're going to have marijuana distribution within Mexico. You're going to have marijuana cultivation for export. You're going to have, and this is the interesting part, maybe industrial hemp allowed to be produced because there is some controversy about whether industrial hemp should be finally included in that legislation because Mexico was registering and allowing importation of United States-based CBD brands in recent years. So maybe that's the way it continues to go. We have another month or so before this legislation is finalized. We're very closely involved in it and in tune with it. But the Mexican market is extremely, extremely interesting, and it represents drug reform across the entire Latin American region. If you've spent 15 minutes watching Narcos on Netflix or any of these things, or if you've read that history and how the United States and its drug policy has basically created this pattern of uh, drug trafficking and, and narco trade across the entire region, all the way down to Patagonia, south of our border, uh, and how it's impacted so many lives. This is a chance for those countries to reform that around the cannabis plant. And it also shows that there is a pathway past that chapter of marijuana being a primary driver of the illicit 
narco trade across Latin America. And that's progress right there. So does that also call to the carpet the fact that our neighbors to the north and to the south will have very robust cannabis legalization measures in place? And here we are in the United States in a very divided country debating things that don't have anything to do with cannabis. Although what happened yesterday, despite the inconclusive results, at least thus far, between uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, what happened yesterday? There was a landslide in the cannabis legislative reform movement with states like Arizona and North Dakota and Mississippi and my home state of New Jersey. The Garden State. The Garden State, indeed. And another thing is Oregon went so far as to put a decriminalization of all drugs on their ballot, in addition to a separate psilocybin mushrooms ballot measure. All of those measures, all of them, Pat. So there is a a new sheriff in town, so to speak, as it relates to drug policy treatment in the United States, if only our federal government would listen. Obviously, that begs the question, with all of the progress that we've had in all of the different states, and and I believe the last uh, thing that I saw was Americans somewhere between 65 and 70 percent support legalization federally of medicinal marijuana. What do you see? I know you don't have a, a crystal ball, but it certainly feels like we're moving that uh, ball closer and closer to the goal line. What do you feel could happen, would happen, and when, based on everything that you're feeling there sitting in the middle of that pizza? Let's think about our candidates. So presently, it really is a toss-up, as as we predicted, and you and I have discussed. I, I thought this election was going to be extremely close. I think it was naive to think that there was going to be a, a landslide one way or the other. And it's just naive to think that there's some sort of consensus in America about whether right-leaning politics or left-leaning politics is the uh, you know majority Demand. Look at the look at the popular vote in this election. It's nearly 50-50. If that doesn't speak volumes about how divided politically our country is, both sides need to embrace the fact that it's 50-50, not dig a deeper divide, understand how that they can modify the way they treat things, the way they address policies to perhaps attract people that have voted on the 50% of the other side to try to get up to 52 or 53 we got to see more of that. That will naturally bridge the divide. But here we are two elections in a row where the Democrats believe that they're just right, that there's a consensus, and that somehow, some way, the, the, that they can ignore the reality. And the Republicans are not much better. It's a, a little bit of chaos on both sides. But it leads to the, the policy issue of cannabis. Trump has always said he's supportive of medical marijuana. He's supportive of the state's rights. He's never moved anything on it. Jeff Sessions, who's no longer with with the attorney general's office there in the Department of Justice, he was a anti-marijuana warrior. We've seen a little bit of that behavior from Barr, but still there's been no movement to shut down what is otherwise an economic driver, if not a favorable policy reform. In fact, it was Republicans who advanced something called the States Act at the federal level, which created a pathway for federal legalization in states that wanted it, not uh, insisting on federal legalization across the entire country. Now, the Democrats, if Biden and Harris are able to pull out this election, what have they said? They've said that marijuana should be decriminalized. In other words, people should not be going to jail for cannabis, even though I can't think of a, a tandem who's jailed more people for cannabis policies, cannabis 
infractions over the years besides Harris and Biden, but their policy has evolved. Politicians, good ones, their policies evolved. Now, look at that. They also said that states should be able to decide, which is akin to the States Act, which is what I mentioned. To me, that's the right policy at the federal level. We don't need the federal government to legalize cannabis and regulate it and create a new entity that it's incapable of meaningfully managing. In fact, it would make more sense if the federal government takes the approach, which is somewhat similar to what we've seen on the hemp side, where it's let the states come up with their regulations and their program, let it be approved by the federal government. And if it's approved by the federal government for meeting minimum threshold standards, then in that state, marijuana is legal. And those actors, those business owners are not deemed to be violating Federal Controlled Substances Act. And that would be critical. So I'm very much in favor of the States Act which a variation of that is also proposed by the Democrats. And I do think that there's a path through these woods. I just don't know if it's it's around outright federal legalization. That just seems like a big, unwieldy beast that would create more agency hierarchy at the federal level. And I don't know about you, but I haven't seen great success from agencies bureaucracies at the federal level in managing things at a federal level in a business-friendly manner. So I would suggest that that we don't necessarily need outright federal legalization. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, it's broken. Don't get me wrong. It's broken. But the fix is not throwing everything out into the trash. The fix is nibbling around the edges and using what we've got right now, I believe. Absolutely. The last thing I wanted to touch on and I, is the miracle plant. We've talked about the medicinal sides and then the qualities of it, which is beautiful and brought us into this industry. But there's another evolution of the plant that so many people don't quite know about yet and who aren't on the inside of the industry. And that is the fiber side of the plant. And all of the, the uses of this plant, whether it's 50,000 jacareras, emperor wears no clothes, all the things that we can make from this incredible plant. And I know that part of your international reach and what we've collaborated on and continue to collaborate on is to reach out to these countries and teach them how to grow this plant and how to use this plant for food and for shelter and for all of the things that this miracle plant can do. So what do you see coming on? What are your predictions? Again, you as the pizza saver, I see mine. I love hearing yours as far as here in this country and around the world, as far as the plant taking that next step in the fiber market and really getting rid of those petroleum-based plastics that we all are trying to move away from and get into the renewable sources like hemp or bamboo. We, we knew that this plant presented the capability to service countless industries tens of thousands of different verticals, if you will, products back in the 30s, if not earlier than that. In fact, we've talked about this. There was a popular mechanics article in the 30s that said, hemp, the next billion dollar crop. They were talking about a crop worth billions with a B in the 30s. Today, we talk about billions of dollars because we understand what a billion dollars could buy. A sports team, maybe half of a sports team, maybe an arena. But when you talk about billions back in the 30s, there had to be some knowledge there, some foresight, and there certainly was. Now, at that point in time, that was prior to the enactment of what was called the the Marijuana Tax Act, which ultimately got moved into our Narcotics Act, which ultimately became the Controlled Substances Act. So all cannabis was basically villainized and criminalized at that point in time, which led us to not see the uses of this plant come to fruition in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s, which led someone like Jack Harrow to come out and say, 
with many others that this plant is so darn useful, we need to look at how we can use it. Now, here we are in 2020, going on 2021, and we need sustainable protein sources. We need sustainable clothing and, and fiber sources. We need sustainable crops that can produce fuels and plastics and a number of other things. And guess what? Here we are talking about the same thing that they've been talking about since the 30s, but even longer than that, being used for millennia, this plant for a variety of different things. And we've got the technology, inexpensive technology. But for us to get past this notion that industrial hemp is only useful for cannabinoids, we need to build infrastructure. And to build infrastructure, we need to start with genetics. So farmers need to stop thinking they're going to get rich planting high cannabinoid crops and plant something that's more akin to a multi-purpose crop. They need to look at the, the fiber. They need to look at the lignin, the cellulose, the sugars from the plant, things that would produce plastics, lend itself well to producing fuels, lend itself well to producing graphene. That is a, a, a capacitor. It's, a, it's an energy exchanger. These are the future uses of the plant, which require farmers to just shift their mindset, grow more consistent genetic plant material, and have processing available within 100 miles of those farmers. If we don't have decortication, fiber separation, and countercurrent technologies to remove cellulose, lignin, sugar, pelletization as a standard may of, way of preserving the material for paper, for plastic and the like. If we don't have those things in place close, the farmers aren't going to grow it. And worse yet, if farmers aren't going to grow it, they're not going to grow it because the, there's no demand from companies. Companies need to push forward with innovation and using, for example, Fortune 500 companies need to start right now. Maybe not putting cannabinoids in products. That's a little bit of an aggressive strategy with no FDA guidance. But what can they do, Justin? Plastic, replace their plastics, replace their packaging with at least some biomaterial to mitigate the environmental impact. And the hemp lends itself very well to packaging reform. So those are the things that are happening out there. Uh, it's going to take some time. We appear to have taken several steps forward in the United States with hemp, and now we're taking a couple steps back. But as I've also written about, that's not a bad thing. That just shows that the industry is getting some legs underneath of it. For those people that thought hemp was just CBD, they were mistaken. CBD is merely an ingredient. It's one great aspect of this plant that continues to pay dividends for those folks that have taken steps to do it the right way. But we need to look beyond cannabinoids as the purpose for this plant because it can do so much more. And then the final thing I would say is, I know that we were talking about regulation and how that might not be the best thing for the plant in certain aspects. And I know that there was another regulatory agency that decided to stick its nose into the ring again after it's been bloodied a few times, but I guess they uh, glutton for punishment. But the DEA decided to come back in and uh, maybe justify its uh, budget. And they wanted to, you know, nose around the extraction process of this beautiful plant for those that are mostly extracting the cannabinoid CBD. But there are so many other cannabinoids now that were coming out with CBG and CBC amongst CBN and others. And I know that you're fighting a good fight once again. So behind the scenes, Bob's out there and he's got his boxing gloves on, laced up, and he's making sure that protecting all of us in this industry, keeping us safe at night, you don't even know it. If you want to speak to that a little bit, and I know there's a website that we can all donate and make sure that you are well-funded to keep the boogeyman away. Yeah, so, so I'll put a finer point on, on that, and that is there is a website. We'll start there, thehemplegaldefensefund.com. Hemp. LegalDefenseFund.com is the name of the website. 
And ultimately, those those dollars raised will go towards one of two lawsuits pending against the DEA, of which the Hoban Law Group, Vicente Cederberg, the law office of Rod Kite, and Yetter Coleman are joint counsel on behalf of the petitioners, which are uh, Rebotanicals, Palmetto Harmony, and the Hemp Industries Association. In response to the DEA's IFR, Interim Final Rule, issued in September, where the DEA said unequivocally that hemp derivatives should never, ever exceed 0.3%. So think about this for a minute. That plant material comes out of the field. It's harvested at 0.3% or below. All good there. That plant material gets sold from the farmer to a processor for extraction. You take that material, you grind it up, you pelletize it, whatever the process, the preferred process might be. Then it becomes a, a, a biomass that is extractable. When you extract that biomass, necessarily you spike in THC percentage. You will exceed the 0.3% THC because you're concentrating the cannabinoids that were otherwise spread across biomass into a liquid form that's highly concentrated. And whether that THC is above 1% or higher, it certainly exceeds 0.3%. So the DEA's rule makes every single extractor in the United States of America engaging in criminal behavior upon the extraction. And that is a problem. And the the Congress did not authorize the DEA to have any authority post-harvest, that post-harvest material. In fact, the the Congress went so far to take THC off of the Controlled Substances Act if it was derived from industrial hemp. So the DEA doesn't have any business here. It has expressed concerns. Congress has responded vehemently that the DEA has exceeded their authority. Other agencies are angry with the DEA, the USDA, the FDA for once again exceeding their authority. And we shall see where this shakes out. But it's something that everyone should pay attention to. You might hear someone say, yeah, the DEA said that, but they're not enforcing it. Justin, is that good enough? Is that good enough? It seems to me that the industry has to fight and claw and scoop and scrap to get everywhere that we are today. And when the DEA comes out and says, if you do this and every single operator in the country does it, then you're violating the Controlled Substances Act that the industry needs to band together and come out with what's clear in black and white and advocate for that in the courts. And hopefully the court sees what Congress sees, what the USDA sees, what the FDA sees, and what the HIA sees in this context. And we'll hopefully get some clarity so that the industry does not have to operate under the specter of illegality. Once again, the entire industry thanks you, Bob, for all of your incredible hard work and foresight and vision and anticipation and seeing some troubled waters on the horizon. So once again, thanks for all you do. If anybody wants to reach out to you, Bob, and get some more of your insights or maybe help them with the sticky situation that they're in, what's a good way or the best way for them to reach out to you and and get some of your consult? Certainly take a look at our website, hoban.law, H-O-B-A-N.law. Listen to our podcast, The Hoban Minute, of which Justin is a recurring guest and, and and a special friend in that regard, and hope that we cover some topics that are interesting to you. We've got tens of thousands of downloads to date. And at the end of the day, our newsletter, our social media, we put out content from our 60 plus lawyers around the world on a daily basis to keep you informed, to keep you educated so that you don't always have to pay for information from lawyers and industry experts. You can get it by uh, subscribing to our newsletter and paying attention to what we're doing. And Justin, you keep doing what you're doing as well. It's great to hear your voice. It's great to have this discussion about the plant 
which is all too often lost in translation when we talk about dollars and revenues and industry that's commercialized. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Thanks again, Bob, for coming on. And please share this out, like it, review it, get the messages out there. And if you've got a great story about this miracle plant that you want to share, reach out to us. We'd love to have have you on as a guest. So once again, Bob, thanks. Thanks for joining us. And thank you, everyone else, for joining the Miracle Plant Podcast. And we'll catch you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.